Okay, you can rise for the reading of God's Word. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We are in Luke chapter 12. We're going through Luke chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Luke chapter 12. We are going to be in verse 33. Luke chapter 12, verse 33. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for this time in your word. And I pray, Father, that you will meet us here this morning. Lord, we need that. Lord, of course, we know that you're always knocking our door, on our door. The question is whether we have our door open to you. Lord, we're weak. We need your help. We need you opening up that door for us. Our ears, our eyes, our mind, Lord, open them up. Help us, Lord, with all those distractions, those things that will take away from hearing precisely what you have for us this morning. Lord, whether we're here in a, a season of great encouragement or we're here in a season of discouragement or pain or great joy, Lord, we believe your word when it says that you have a word for us this morning. We thank you for that, Lord. Please lead us there in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. Okay, so last week in verses 22 through 32, Jesus tells his disciples not to worry. Three times, do not worry, verse 22. Do not have an anxious mind, verse 29, and do not fear, verse 32. What prompted this? So important that we read the Bible in its context. Like, why does he all of a sudden start with that three times in quick succession? He was talking within a period of two minutes. Do not worry. Don't have an anxious mind. Do not fear. Well, he had just told a parable. The parable is in verses 16 through 21, and the parable is about covetousness, or it's addressing covetousness. He, uh, Jesus says in verse 15, take heed, beware of covetousness. Covetousness, the underlying Greek word, pleonectos. All it means is to want more covetousness, that desire to, have, to want more than what God has for us. Beware of it. And then he goes on and he says, and he tells this parable about covetousness. And he begins in verse 16. Let's read it again. It's a very short one. Jesus says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no more room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool. 
This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? And then Jesus ends in verse 21. So is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. So a few Sundays ago, actually it was the one a couple Sundays before Christmas, and I thought it was, a, it was just wonderful. It was God's timing. We talked about this whole thing about bigger barns, the bigger barns thing in America. Bigger barns. It is so utterly expected in this country that when we get our hands on some more dough, a little more cash, or maybe a lot of it, a job promotion, a, an inheritance, or, or, or maybe a, a, a line of credit from the bank, well, what do we do with it? Well, we upgrade, man. That's what we do here in this country, because we can. And all of that has seeped into American Christianity in the last 50, 60 years. And in my opinion, it's just taken over. Churches, Christians in this country have incorporated this bigger Barnes thing into into their Christian lifestyle. And again, I'm not talking about this health and wealth gospel TV preachers who teach that every Christian has a God-given right to become wealthy. That's just complete nonsense. I'm not talking about those folks, you know, just cording them off and and whatever. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about your average church of self-professed, born-again Christians in the United States of America is filled with men and women who have a bigger Barnes lifestyle, and they think nothing of it. It's just part of being a Christian in America. If more money comes in or a bigger credit line is available for a bigger car, a bigger house, a more expensive vacation, there's not so much as a prayer. I mean, it's from the Lord, man. It's here. It was offered to me. It's, it, it, it's in my lap. Wow, sounds familiar. Luke chapter 12, what shall I do? I have all these extra crops. I don't know what to do with them. Well, I'm going to build bigger barns, of course. Of course that's what I'm going to do. Oh, man. Does Jesus take a dagger and plunge it into the belly the bloated belly, the bloated American belly of this crazy way of life we have adopted in this country, in the church. Verse 20, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then you will see, who will see those things for which you have provided? And then he pauses and says, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. 
rich towards God, giving God your increase, giving God the first fruits of your increase, giving God that extra money or the better job, the first fruits of it. And what do I mean by first fruits? I mean, it's, it's the, the, the first thing you do when you receive news of a pay raise or a financial gift or an inheritance. You take it to God and say, okay, Lord, this is all yours. What do you want me to do with it? being rich towards God. But you know, a funny thing happens when Jesus starts talking like this, being rich towards God. Funny thing happens to us. Man, our, our hands begin to sweat. Fear starts creeping in. Man, if I do that, if I do what he's saying, if I'm giving the first fruits of my money, my income, what, what happens if this happens? What happens if that happens? What, what, what about this? What about if that calamity happens? What, it, and what, so what does Jesus do? Immediately, verse 22, do not worry about your life. The very next thing he says. Because why? He knows us. Oh, boy, does Jesus knows us. He knows us so well, doesn't he? We start to talk. He starts talking about giving. He knows us. Immediately, verse 22, do not worry about your life. Verse 29, do not have an anxious mind. Verse 32, do not fear. And so we left off last week in verses 31 and 32. I just want to read it again together. Verse 30 um, says, seek the kingdom of God. Matthew, in Matthew, it says, seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things shall be added unto you. What things? All the stuff that the world chases after. And then verse 32, do not fear little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. To give you the kingdom. The New American Standard says this, different translation. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Now, there's another translation has said deliberately chosen. He's made a choice to give you the kingdom. In the New Living Translation, it says this. So don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. And that's where we left off last week. And I want to take, uh, we sort of ran out of time. I want to just begin here uh, this week. Someone asked me uh, this past week, well, what does that mean anyway? What does it mean that the Father will give you the kingdom? What does that mean? The kingdom. What's that? What is it that I receive when I receive from the Father the kingdom? Oh, man, is that a question that really deserves a really, really long answer? Anyone can say, you guys can say to 3 o'clock, any of you? Are you okay with that, 3 o'clock? <laughs> 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock? I won't do that to you. 
but it's a long answer, and the best way to give the, give, get the answer is to read the Bible starting in Genesis chapter 1 and ending in Revelation chapter 2 because the whole Bible is about what happens when the Father gives you the kingdom. That's what the whole Bible is about. But the short answer is this. I will, I will try in just a couple of minutes. When the Father gives you the kingdom, what he's talking about here, when he says it gives the Father great happiness to give you the kingdom, when, he, when, when he's saying that, what he means is he's giving you all the rights and the privilege and the benefits of a son or of a daughter. It's probably easiest to think of it in terms of our own son or our own daughter. If you don't have kids, what a father or mother gives to their kids. So when I brought my son or one of my daughters home from the hospital, what did I give them? I, 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 brought, I, I brought them into the home. And, and first and foremost, I give them love, joy, peace, and gladness. It's what every father loves to give. But, but it goes just so way beyond that. It, 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 it's physical protection. It's material protection. In other words, I make sure they're well taken care of. I give them wisdom. I give them guidance. I give them direction. But of course we know that as we read Luke chapter 12, that when Jesus is talking here and he says, it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, he's not talking about a puny little father like you or me. Okay, I'm a little punier than you are, but we're all puny, right? You know, we're fallen creatures, We're filled with imperfection, sin, weakness. When Jesus says it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, he's talking about you, not in your capacity as a son of a human being, but as a son of a king. And not any other king, the king of kings, God Almighty. God Almighty. You're a child of God. The Bible says, to as many who believed in Jesus, to, the, to as many who received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. So Romans chapter 8 says this, this interesting verse in uh, Romans chapter 8. It says, the Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. Goes on to say co-heirs with Jesus, but heirs with God. What is an heir? An heir is, in this context, is someone who is given all the rights and the benefits and the privileges. So as a child of God's house, your father's house, father God's house, what does he give you when you come into the house? What every father loves to give. Love, joy, peace, gladness. But he gives physical protection. Bible says no weapon formed against you will prosper. He gives material protection. He makes sure that you are well taken care of, including when you're rich towards God. And then, of course, he gives you wisdom and guidance and puts a calling on your life and gives you favor in the world. He blesses you in relationships. He gives you power, strength, endures patience, and a zillion other things. That's what God's house. The Bible actually says, in God's house, when we're in God's house, he fills our rooms with riches and every good thing. That's a verse in the Bible. Not, not speaking of material wealth, but just 
the whole package that a father loves to give when, when a child comes into the house. So that's a short answer. If you want a complete answer, you read Genesis to Revelation. But that is the short answer of what Jesus means in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, when he says, the Father delights in giving you the kingdom. The kingdom actually is what Paul, the Apostle Paul, was referring to in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. Very familiar verse where he says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Speaking of what you receive when you receive the kingdom from God. So, okay, we've come full circle now. When Jesus is saying God will give you the kingdom, what is he saying? He's saying you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to worry about. I've just told you that... uh, that in order to be a son, a child, to live the abundant life, you must be rich towards God, but don't fear, don't have an anxious mind. So Jesus here goes and puts their hearts to rest. Consider the ravens, consider the lilies, how God takes care of them, and and how much more value are you than them? It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So, you know, it's like, ah, now we can relax. So what does he do? In verse 33, he just picks it right back up. Right back up. Now that you're all relaxed, what does he say? Verse 33, go Sell what you have and give alms, meaning give to the poor. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." Let me put up at a, another translation here. This is the New International Version. Sell your possessions and give to the, the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroy. So can we just go back to sell your possessions? Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Wow. That's what being rich towards God means? Selling my possessions and giving to the poor. So here's what happens when we teach on these verses in the United States of America. Virtually every time you hear a pastor teach on this, or you read a book or a commentary on this verse uh, like it, you'll hear the same thing. Well, you know, this doesn't mean every Christian should ask to sell everything they have. Don't worry. So we have our own do not worry sermon. It's a little different than Jesus's. 
don't worry, this doesn't mean that you have to sell everything you have. After all, the Apostle Peter, he didn't give up his house, which is true. The, uh, the Apostle Matthew didn't give up his. You have houses of people in the book of Acts. They didn't give up their house. All that true. Zacchaeus didn't, give, didn't sell everything he had. But let me tell you what happens when Christians hear this, yeah, this type of thing. They, they hold their breath. They hear the pastor. They, and they hear him say, oh, you know, he proves his point. Oh, phew. Oh, oh thank goodness. Whew. I'm glad that doesn't apply to me. Whew. That was a close call, you know, coming in here. And, 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 and you know, it, or, or, you know, uh, now this doesn't mean you can't have, save up for your retirement now. Oh, Man, I'm not glad he said that. I just increased my 5, 401k to 5 to 10% of my each paycheck. I'm glad he just said that. And, and, and so what they do is they go, they hold their breath, they go, phew, and, and then they, they, they go leave the service and they go right back to their bigger barn's life. That's what they do. That's what we do. Verse 34, why do we do that? Why do, do, why do so many who call themselves born-again Christians do this? Verse 34, very simple. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You're just going back to where your heart is. That's all you're doing. Surely all of this is not okay. Surely. So another book in our bookstore, Kenny, I'm doing this for Kenny Brown. He likes to sell books. Is this in our bookstore, Kenny? Yes. Radical. So I talked about this about six, six months ago or so, and it's a book by a guy named David Platt, and he, he was reading these same kind of verses, and he's come to the same conclusion. Surely all this is not okay. He was the pastor... Uh, he is still the pastor of a very large church in, in Alabama, just one of these $20 million things, $10, $20 million things. And, and he's just looking around thinking, something's wrong here. Something's really wrong. So he wrote this book, Radical. But then what he more or less does during the book is rename the book. It's not really radical. It's just biblical. It's just Biblical what Jesus teaches. So I'm going to read a little bit from this book, Radical, and, and it's from chapter 6, How Much is Enough, Americans' Wealth in a World of Poverty. I can think of at least one glaring blind spot in American Christian history. What's one blind spot in American Christian history? Anybody? I'm waiting for an answer. A blind slavery. That's right, slavery. Slavery. How could Christians who supposedly believe the gospel so easily rationalize the enslavement of human beings? Not bad for a guy from Alabama, huh? Churchgoers with good intentions worshiping God together every Sunday and reading the Bible religiously all week long, all the while using God's word to justify treating men, women, and children as property to be used or abused. They actually thought they were generous when they gave their slaves an extra chicken for Christmas. This frightens me. 
Good intentions, regular worship, and even study of the Bible do not prevent blindness in us. Part of our sinful nature instinctively chooses to see what we want to see and to ignore what we want to ignore. I can live my Christian life and even lead the church while unknowingly overlooking evil. Today, more than a billion people live in the world who live and die in desperate poverty. They attempt to survive on less than a dollar a day. Close to two billion people live on less than two dollars per day. That's nearly half the world struggling today to find food, water, and shelter with the same amount of money I spend on French fries for lunch. More than 26,000 today, children today will breathe their last breath due to starvation or a preventable disease. To put that in perspective for me, that's 26,000 Joshua's and Caleb's. Those are the names of his two sons. For me, it would be Sam, Adley, Elise, Grace, and Faith. Did I say them all? I better have. <laughs> Dying every day. To put it in perspective for the church uh, pastor, if this were happening among the children in my community, then every child 18 years or, or younger in our county would be dead within two days. Suddenly I began to realize that if I have been commanded to make disciples of all nations and if poverty is rampant in the world to which God has called me, then I cannot ignore these things. We look back on slave-owning churchgoers 150 years ago, and I ask, how could they have treated their fellow human beings that way? I wonder if followers of Jesus Christ in 150 years from now will look back at Christians in America today and say, how could they live in such big houses? How could they drive nice cars and wear such nice clothes? How could they live in such affluence while thousands of children were dying because they didn't have food and water? How could they go on with their lives as though the billions of poor didn't exist. And then he goes, and then he says this, just a little bit more. Thank you for your patience. He says, now I immediately want to guard against a potentially serious misunderstanding in this chapter. The Bible nowhere teaches that caring for the poor is a means by which we can earn salvation. The means of our salvation is faith in Christ alone. And the basis of our salvation is the work of Christ alone. We are not saved by caring for the poor. And one of the worst possible responses to this chapter would be to strive to care for the poor in order to earn our salvation or increase our standing before God. Yet, while caring for the poor is not the basis of our salvation, this does not mean that our use of our wealth is not totally disconnected from our salvation. Indeed, caring for the poor, among other things, is evidence of our salvation. If there is no sign of caring for the poor in our lives, then there is reason to at least question whether Christ is in our hearts. Now, man, you start talking like this, 
and people start saying, well, this guy's gone from preaching to meddling. In fact, he's, go- he's doing more than meddling. He's, intr- he's intruding at this point. And people don't like when people like me talk about their affluent lifestyle. They don't like when preachers talk about money. You know why? Because money's their idol. Don't be talking about my idol. Now you're talking about my idol. All preachers talk about money. Oh, the only reason you're saying that is because money's your idol. You don't like people talking about your idol. One of the things that he emphasizes in this book, and by the way, it's, it's, it's Jesus who talks about this idol all the time. All the time. We'll get to that in a little bit. One of the things that he emphasizes so much in this book is just, you know, it's getting, getting rid of stuff and not always thinking we have to upgrade every single time we get our hands on more money. He emphasizes giving to the poor and being rich towards God. It, it, one of the things I love about it, he says, this is the gospel. This is part of it, meaning the good news. Remember, first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, They are the Gospels, the good news, and this is all part of it. It's part of the good news. Let's put up this verse right here. Now, this is when Jesus, the rich young ruler, comes up to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to go to heaven? In Mark chapter 10, it says, Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. This is good news, what he's about to say. He loved him. And then he went on to tell him the good news. And he said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. So go back to the previous page. Jesus looking at him, loved him. You see, it's part of the gospel. It's part of what he wants for our life because he loves us. He's trying to save us from this culture of wealth and death that we live in. You know, I grew up in a a suburb west of Boston, Dover. As growing up as a kid, it's all I really knew. My father's side, through my grandmother, was just a very, very affluent New England family. My, I don't like talking about this, but my father went to Harvard. My great-grandfather went to Harvard. My great-great-grandfather went to Harvard. He lived on Beacon Hill. And so I grew up in all of this. And that whole f- part of the family... They did not go to church, ever. My great-grandparents never went to church. You say, like, well-off New Englanders? Yes, that's what New England was like in the early 1900s. Unitarian had set in and just destroyed the church up here. 
My grandparents got married outside the church. They didn't go to church themselves growing up. And God was education. I remember in seventh grade, like a major, major topic of conversation. Where are you going to school? And, and, and you know, we'd remember being in a private school, and that's what all the other kids talked about. And I remember this one kid, Sammy Shayo, I'm going to go to Caltech, seventh grade. And he did. God bless him, by the way. It's a good school. But, but I mean, it's like a major topic of conversation. And, 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 and I remember my, and if there's anything I learned growing up in this, it's not at all something to be desired. It was an ugly, miserable mess. My, my, my grandfather, who married my grandmother, who was, comes from this uh, affluent line of people. I was told he never had to work. He retired very young. Every day it looked like the same thing. He w- went to the country club and played tennis. He had happy hour at 5 o'clock. He took a cruise once a year. This was his whole life. And he died like that. And I hate saying this about him, but it was a classic example of a wasted life. And his four kids, it's like the American soap opera. We're not talking a few months going by without talking with each other. We're talking 10 plus years at a time. The four siblings. Their whole lives, as long as I knew it. They, they, they don't talk to each other. They have nothing to do with each other. It's the good news, man. Jesus is teaching us the good news because anything else, human beings left are their own devices, that's what they'll reap. I remember my friend Pete Reyes and I in high school, in a private school, going from family to family to family. Everyone was a, a wreck. And I'm like, I don't, want, I don't want this. I don't want anything like this. And by the grace of God, our family wound up going into the first Christian church we'd ever been in when I was about 17 years old. I heard the gospel. I heard about being born again. I immediately knew this is it. This is the way out. And being rich towards God is part of the good news. It's part of the package. It's, part, it's not how we get saved, but it's how we work out our salvation, meaning how we live in it. And when you read through the Bibles, you can't get away from this. So why in America do we so desperately try to get away from this? Here's another verse in Luke. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Oh, man. Woo. Let's go on. Acts chapter 20. So this is the early church living out its uh, living out its faith. And this is Paul. I think he's talking to the church in Ephesus here. And he's, he's saying, I have shown you in every way that you must support the weak. And that word weak, it just means poor. It means the destitute is what it means. In Galatians chapter 2, it says, they desired only that we should remember the poor. Now, this is where 
Paul, the apostle Paul, remember he uh, is knocked off his donkey and Jesus, he's wonderfully saved. He goes, he's persecuting, he's killing Christians. And then Jesus saves them, and then he shows up with the apostles and tells them all about what he believes, his doctrine, and they were all for it. They just added one thing to what he said, what he presented to them, and it was this. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. In the Bible, the word fatherless is used 43 times. Go and do a word study of that of that word in the Bible. The, the word poor, 197 times. The word widows, 80 times. Aliens, meaning immigrants. Oh, don't talk about immigrants. Shut up. You can't do that in the American church in America. Well, I, tell, I challenge you to go through the Bible and read, the 92, read about the 92 times it talks about them and what our attitude towards them needs to be. The sick, the oppressed, the powerless. So David Platt, this is why he says, he says, if there is no sign of caring for the poor in our lives, then there's reason to at least question whether Christ is in our lives. You know why? Because he sees it every day. He sees it every single day. 30,000 kids a day dying. He sees it. We don't, but he does. Now, one of the things we from the very beginning, we wanted to do in this church is, is, is go on missions, go on missions, trips. And I remember because, uh, not like a one-time thing, but as a lifestyle, because once you get a taste, I remember being in Haiti after the earthquake, and every, the whole camp was abandoned. They, the, we were in a tent city because all the houses had been destroyed and we were in the tent city. And I went back to get something. No one was in the whole camp. And I saw a young girl. And she was, she was by my tent, actually. And she was wanting money. And it, she was wanting money for sex. And all I was going to do was, was get her one day's food. Now, when you see this over time, you're getting a taste of what God sees every single day. Every single day. That's why if Christ lives in you and you have no care, you, we, need to, we need to wonder, well, is he, is he in our hearts? And, and one of the one, wonderful things I love about this book, and I, I do recommend it, is a great humility in him. He's like, I don't even have the answers. I don't even have half of them. This is what, more or less what he's saying. But if we're not at least struggling through to figure out what we need to do, something is wrong. Because it's part of the gospel. It's part of the good news. It's part of who we are. And it'll free us. It's so freeing when we start being rich towards God. And, you know, we, we, we began this church, like many other church, churches, with good intentions, man. We just want to follow the Word of God. And, 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 you know, speaking of Haiti, we've tried to be obedient in, our, in, the, in the life of the church, in our own lives. We've, the last five, six years, $300,000 have gone down there from members of this church or the church itself. 
80% of the country is, is, is unemployed, and, and the, the church down there, which, by the way, is up to 1,000 people, just started five years ago, proclaiming the gospel every day. And, and, and it's not just feeding the poor. It's, they, they have feeding programs, but, it, but, but he has computer school. They have computer school all week down there. They have uh, lessons to teach people how to drive. They have uh, lessons to teach people English, which is... Um, uh, uh, basically something that's a marketable skill down there. Uh, then, there, of course, there's two orphanages. One is an orphanages, uh, orphanage for kids who were abandoned when they were very young, and another one is for street kids just taken off the streets. They were just stealing all day uh, to, 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 to live. And, and then they, they are also starting up micro-enterprises, all with under the rubric of the church. Our church's bu- budget, about 13% towards foreign missions and when you add the giving to the outreach here in Boston we there's needs here in Boston it's about 20% of our budget we were, the church received $368,000 last year in tithes and offerings that's good for a church this size so we, we sent about $70,000 to missions and outreach and, and you know I think 20 Percent is wonderful, but I'm supposed to be struggling through all this. And as I read the Bible, man, why can't we get the 50? 50 percent. There's actually in this book, it talks about a church that, that was able to do 50 percent of their budget towards, towards, towards outreach. You know, I, 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 there's so much opportunity, not only to give money, but to, to give our lives. We, we, every single week, we give. We minister to the fatherless in this community every single week in Calvary Kids. Every week, we're ministering to kids who do not have a father who's active in their life. Do a word study of the word fatherless. And, and so there's, uh, you know, uh, if, 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 if you don't have money, you can give the first fruits of your time. And if you have a very little money, you can start with a little and work up, but you can give it's it's all about it's all about a lifestyle. It's about an attitude. It's about giving God, it's about Jesus Christ be, being our life. The Bible says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he died so that we who live would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. It's also so important that not only as a church, but just you all individually out there, how can you just be rich towards God? And none of this is easy, man. You give to homeless people in Boston, what I've told from the homeless themselves is that they use it on drugs. Am I going to give cash to them? We just, but seek the Lord. He'll tell you. One of the things that he's done with me, because I travel a fair amount, is and it hurts every time I do it. Yet yeah, God loves a cheerful giver. But the, many of the, the, as I look back at my life, the time that I was blessed so much is when it also really hurt. And every, when I'm at a hotel, what, what I've just gotten the practice of doing, here's people making a minimum wage or below minimum wage. And man, I just leave a big old fat tip. <laughs> And every time it's a little painful, but it's always a blessing. I mean, one that they're going to see and think, oh, no, someone left their money. 
But as God provides, as, and, and, and we're, not, if we're not supposed to be giving what, so we can't pay our bills. But there is a faith walk. You know, Alex Piagetti, who, who's uh, in Brazil now, in the slums, starting a church in the slums. When we started uh, supporting him two years ago, we, d- we were at a negative cash flow. We had some savings. But, you know, we just started giving to him. And sure enough, within six months, the church was back in the, you know, what do you call it? The black, it, you know, making, taking in more than, than we were spending. And, and so that we were able to start considering other things. I'm going in a month to Argentina. Right now, we really don't have the money. We don't have the cash flow. But I'm just going down there by faith to visit Pastor Leo, the first Calvary Chapel in Argentina, who has a vision for the whole country. I'm just doing it by faith, man believing that the Lord has started this work on us and he's going to continue it. Being rich towards God. And you know what the wonderful thing about all this is? Verse 33 says this. Sell what you have, give alms, meaning give to the poor. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches nor moth destroys, meaning we're actually investing in something and getting something out of it that no one can touch. It's a, it's a kind of bank account that is absolutely protected by God Almighty. A retirement that, is, that, that no financial crisis can, can bring it down. It's, it's where n- neither moth destroys or thief can get in there. It's, it's something that is completely reserved for us in heaven. But, of course, we get abundant life now. And Jesus says you will get now as well. And that's always been the case. And then in verse 34, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I find it very interesting where he immediately goes after this. Verse 35 through 40, he starts talking about the return of Christ. His return, actually. Blessed are those servants, verse 37, whom the master, when he comes, he will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you, he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants, verse 39, but know this that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus promised to return. Man, I want to just be living for him when he returns. Don't you? And God always gives us the grace to do just that to live and follow him without any condemnation, without any law hanging over our head, just purely by grace. Jesus says he who the sun sets free is free indeed. And he frees us up to live like that. That's good news. It's part of the gospel. It's the good news. Okay, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. So if something that was mentioned this morning was stirring around in your heart, we're going to have prayer people here in the corners, and you can just come up and pray during this closing song.
course, I always want to say this as well. We are saved by grace. And that not of our, by, we are saved by grace through faith. And that not of ourselves is the gift of God. Not of good works, lest any man should boast. So no matter how good or bad we've done in this area, know this. You're not saved by trying to do good works. The Bible says that all our best works are, have been poisoned by our own selfish motives. We're saved by one thing. Jesus said, the last thing he said on the cross was, it is done. What is done? Everything that needed to be done for you, you sitting here this morning, all of you, to have an eternal relationship with God. And the Bible says that if you come to Jesus with a spirit of repentance, with a spirit of, I'm tired of my life, I believe who you are. You died on the cross for me in my place. And you give up your heart to him in that instant. The Bible says that you become a child of God. And we do this by a simple prayer of faith. If you've never done that, you can come up uh, and pray during this, uh, during this closing song or anything else you'd like to, uh, anything else that you'd like to pray about. Why don't we rise and, and we'll close in prayer right now. Father, I just thank you for everything we've heard. And Lord, I just pray for everybody in here, Lord, that this would be a freeing message, not one that closes them in, but a freeing one, Lord. That's why you gave it. You gave it to free us. We thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, in thanks for this wonderful good news. It's wonderful good news, Lord. You've saved, saved us by grace, and yet you've saved us into a life, Lord, which is not about ourselves. It's about you. It's about being road signs for you, Lord. Father, we ask as this week goes on that you will just stir up our understanding, increase our understanding and our knowledge of these things. Lord, free us from the chains the bondage that we have of always wanting bigger barns and insisting on keeping the bigger barns beyond the time that you want us to have them sometimes, Lord. And I just pray, Father, also for a deep, deep understanding amongst all of us of what it means, what you mean, Lord, when you call us your son, you call us your daughter. And when you call yourself our father, oh, that we would grow in that, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.